This is The Visible Hand, a podcast about organizations, economics, and management. My name is Jordi Blanes Vidal, and I am an associate professor at the Department of Management, London School of Economics. My guest today is Chris Stanton, who is the Marvin Bauer Associate Professor at Harvard Business School. Today, we are going to talk about his paper, Workplace Knowledge Flows, which is co-authored with Jason Sandwick, Richard Sauma, and Nathan Siegert, uh, and was published in 2020 at the Quarterly Journal of Economics. Hello, Chris. Welcome to the program. Oh, hello, Jordi. It's uh, great to be with you virtually. You know, you and I were colleagues at the LSE, and so I love when we have a chance to connect. You just sent us a photograph uh, for the website and mentioned that uh, it has been six years. It's scary how quickly time has passed. It is. Chris, what is a workplace knowledge flow? (laughs) You lead with the hard questions. Well, it's a title, so let's start there. So the idea behind the title is that the ability to know how to handle different situations or solve problems or to deal with the circumstances that someone would face at work is often not uniform. What we had in mind was transmission of some of these tips, tricks, or more broadly, knowledge between people uh, who are coworkers. More generally, you might think of this as one form of potential peer effects or peer spillovers that might take place at work, which is a setting that we concentrate on, but may have different applicability if you were to zoom out to like a city or to other contexts. But really, we're just talking about sort of the transmission of how to do a job between coworkers. So the precondition for this uh, transmission of knowledge between coworkers to be uh, somewhat effective or important is that some coworkers know things that others don't, or in other words, that some coworkers know more than others or are more productive than others. Is this something that has been uh, documented in many organizations or specifically the organization that you will use as part of your study? Let me start broad, which is, I think that there are a number of studies across settings where productivity is relatively easy to measure, where we have some sense that there are differences in productivity across people. What I think we don't know in those settings is whether those differences come from some people just working harder than others or whether some people know more than others. But I think productivity dispersion is somewhat ubiquitous. In our setting, it looked like productivity dispersion was quite high because the setting that we're interested in is a sales call center where people respond to incoming calls. And so on a given call that is randomly allocated to a salesperson, we can actually look at how much revenue each salesperson brings in. And so as a result, we can document that productivity dispersion is is quite high in the setting that we look at. Now, of course, that statistic itself doesn't tell you that there are differences in knowledge or differences in the tips and tricks and best practices that one is using to do a job. It could be that you know, you're know you a grinder and you work hard on every call and I'm a slacker and I don't put forth as much effort. But that productivity dispersion, I would say, is one of the preconditions that you would think about unless there are some offsetting factors to at least conjecture that there are likely differences in what people know about how to do their jobs that leads to some of that dispersion. But in... Many firms are, and I know also in the firm that, that you study, there is typically some type of like induction or training process that provides workers with at least some basics about how to do their jobs. In this case, how to handle the call or whatever. 
we are talking here about acquiring additional knowledge from the colleagues of, say, one worker. Presumably, this type of additional knowledge must be knowledge that is somewhat more subtle, that cannot be easily codified in the training manual. Is that correct? That, that's right. So in, in the setting that we look at, everyone comes in and does two weeks of training. After that, they go live and they interact with customers and they try to make sure that they're serving customer needs and when appropriate, upselling to better, more expensive bundles that yields more revenue for the firm and, and consequently higher compensation for themselves. So everyone is compensated with a base hourly rate that is above sort of the minimum wage for the local area. And then they earn a fraction of their sales and, and commission pay. So as a result, the model that we have in mind, and I think that this is going to be borne out empirically, is that there is lots of on-the-job learning in terms of how to deal with circumstances that this training program could not feasibly tailor things for for, for every situation. Okay, so I am now convinced that workplace knowledge flows are a thing and that they happen in organizations. I still don't understand at this point why one has to write a paper on this thing. Uh, that is why there is a problem. If workers have the need and the opportunity to learn from their colleagues, why do we need any type of intervention to, to help them do that? Why don't they just cross the room, go to other colleagues who are more productive and ask for help? I think that that's a great question, and it wasn't obvious to me going into this that that wouldn't have been the setting that should have formed your null hypothesis, or that shouldn't have been sort of what your null hypothesis would be. You know, my mental model of salespeople is that they're gregarious and they'll go out and ask others for help. They'll try to do anything they can to advance their career because they're paid based on their own performance. And so I think that there is just a question even at baseline, about whether anything that you would do to try to perturb who knows what in the workplace would be effective. Because I think most economists would sort of have a model that everyone is probably close to the efficient frontier in terms of the knowledge that they acquire, given their costs of knowledge acquisition and the like. And so I think that this is a very good question about you know what the motivation was for the study. On, on the other hand, I think that there's a literature that does suggest that peer effects and contextual effects are reasonably powerful in a variety of settings, but we don't know how to organize them, or at least most people didn't know how to organize them very well. So if you look at reduced form studies of, say, peer effects, the effect of having a peer in a, a variety of different, a, a better peer in a variety of different settings seems to matter for you know educational outcomes, career choices, you name it. But if you then take an experimental approach to say, let's take the reduced form peer effects that have been estimated from, say, education, and then try to apply that to like cohorts of new students at the Air Force Academy, you get very, very different results. And so in our context, when we just look at the dispersion and productivity, you might have thought that there's just some set of workers who have very, very high costs of learning or are just naturally sort of less productive than others. You know, you might say that you put Chris Stanton on a sales call and he's not ever going to do a good job because he's just not a natural talent. And so under your model, you know, our intervention shouldn't have done anything. But under some alternative models that I think have demonstrated the importance of peer effects in other settings, it was a question about whether some type of intervention could have closed some of these productivity gaps if you thought that the influence of peers or spillovers was potentially going to either contribute to differences in knowledge or productivity in the workplace. 
and to be able to close those gaps. This is fine, but pure effects are relatively vague terms. Specifically, if I had to explain to a layperson, why is it that this worker is less productive than the colleague and the worker doesn't go and ask for help? What would be, perhaps in your setting, the obstacles that will make that transmission of knowledge less likely to, to happen? Before getting there, I think we should just clarify some of the mechanisms behind what a peer effect is. And so the prior literature has largely, I think, focused on two distinct mechanisms. One is peer pressure, thinking about putting sort of social pressure on others who might not be performing, especially in sort of interdependent tasks. And in our context, there there's really no task interdependence. And in fact, there's some relative performance evaluation, which might mean that there isn't an incentive to sh- put pressure on others to perform or to share information. The, the second form of peer effects that I think is somewhat ubiquitous in the literature is a peer effect from imitation or from social learning. So if I see that you're doing something and what you're doing is better in some sense than what I'm doing, you've learned a better technique and so I can imitate what you're doing. And so in terms of what blocks imitation, I think one hypothesis is that we're in a relatively competitive sales environment in the context that we study. And so there may be incentives to obfuscate. So I think it's unknown whether someone who has better information about what works to say, upsell a customer is going to share that information because it's not necessarily readily observable. And then, so that's a supply story. And then there's a demand story, which is, you know, I might be intimidated to go talk to you if you've routinely demonstrated that you're more talented or have better knowledge. And that would prevent me from, say, exposing the fact that I don't know what I'm doing. And that that latter demand story is usually one where it's hard to write down an economic model because you have to put some like embarrassment cost in utility. Uh, but I, I think that there's some emerging evidence from the fields of like organizational behavior or from sort of behavioral economics that does suggest that those types of explanations on the demand side have some real effects for how we think about the willingness or the demand to seek out information from others. Okay, so yeah, as, as everything in life, there is supply and there is demand, uh, yeah. right? So barriers to asking for help, barriers to demanding help, and, and you mentioned some type of behavioral embarrassment cost, and then barriers to supplying help. You know, it takes effort to help somebody else. Maybe there is some type of relative performance, so making your my colleagues better is actually making me worse indirectly somehow. So therefore, it's an empirical question whether decreasing somehow these barriers will lead to an increase in productivity, especially among some workers. Uh, Can you now describe a little bit more expansively what is the work setting that you study? Sure. And I've I've hinted at this a little bit, but I think understanding the, the context is important. So this is an inbound sales call center. And inbound is an important modifier, meaning that we're not measuring people who are actually actively trying to get leads calling those leads and trying to sell them something. They're responding to inquiries where a customer dials a phone number, that phone number gets routed to one of the the sales agents at the company and the sales agent then handles their request. And there are a couple of ways that a sales agent can be more productive than others. The first is that some callers tend to call in and they just want information about a product. And so if you can convert that caller into a sale on the extensive margin 
you've done your job and you booked some revenue for that call. There are other callers who may want to consider, you know, a baseline package, but you might be able to sell them an upgraded package or a bundle. And so this is a a US-based company and most of the products that they're selling are phone, internet, and other digital services. And so you might say, you know, if you're getting a high-speed internet package, you might want a home security system, you might want a TV package, you might want high-performance phone, you might want a host of other things that the the agent can cross-sell. So as a result, those are sort of the main tasks that agents in, in this context do. In, in terms of how all of this works, agents book revenue on every call and they end up earning commissions at the end of every week that are mainly a function of their own performance, but adjust somewhat based on their relative standing compared to their coworkers who are selling the same types of products. And an important element here is also that calls are randomly allocated. Correct. That is, which means that everybody in principle has the same opportunities to sell, which means that productivity or revenue is like a a meaningful productivity variable. If you sell more than me, we can be certain that you are more productive than me, conditional on maybe the hours in which we are working uh, or or whatever. Is that that correct? That's right. And so, you know, if, if we only saw you take two calls and me take two calls, the confidence intervals on the productivity estimates between us would be huge. But these agents are handling about two calls per hour and they work 35 hours a week and we see them over a number of weeks. And so as a result, our ability to say something about the distribution of productivity is really unique in this setting because we have granular productivity measures that we can aggregate to reduce the variability across people into something that really only looks like sort of the the person component rather than noise. Okay. The important element of knowledge that in your setting workers will need to acquire in order to be more productive, the way that you describe it at least seems like relatively subtle. Like at what point in the conversation you should ask about the customer needs, Uh, You said that there are several products, so you may want to bundle certain combinations of products. Again, at what point in the conversation, for what particular type of customer, this will be knowledge going back to my earlier point. It's not in the training manual. You acquire it hopefully through experience and maybe some colleague can help you. Correct. It turns out that quite a lot of what we have heard in interviews is that people have their own sort of subtle techniques about when to be aggressive in a sales call, when to probe for information, and how to sort of sequence a bundle of products together that might be more or less useful for an end customer, which would really sort of allow the sales agent to effectively price discriminate based on the information that they recover during a call. So these sales agents, they have direct managers though. They are organizing teams and every 8, 10, 12 workers are assigned to a manager. Presumably these managers are, or at least some of them, are previous salesmen. Why don't they ask their managers, what should I do? Because I would expect that both the demand barriers and the supply barriers are smaller or even non-existent in terms of asking help from their managers. That's a good point. And this leads me to one of my prior papers, which is on the value of those, those frontline managers. And, you know, ideally you might think of organizational design or the organizational design problem as putting managers in place to solve some of these supply and demand frictions, in part because the manager's incentive is to make workers better. 
I think that there are a couple of potential responses to this beyond just the simple starting point that we do see quite a lot of productivity variation despite the existence or the role of managers, even within the same manager. I, I think there are a couple of things that explain that or potentially explain that. The, the first is that you have about 15 sales agents working under a manager. And so it's not necessarily clear that managers have time to necessarily bring up the lower tail, especially if you sort of think that a manager is compensated based on team-based performance. And so at least in this setting, and so there may not have been quite as much attention on building up agents who are not quite as productive as others. And that that's it's hard to distinguish whether that's a time use question or an incentive question. The, the second factor is is also that I, I'm now relatively convinced that there is style in sales. That might mean that your style of being able to imitate what a manager does is potentially going to mean that you go down a path that is not necessarily one that works for you. And so I, I think that that's one other possible explanation. Would, would this be different in terms of imitating what your colleague does? Well, not necessarily in our design. And I think our design has has the ability to test for this in a subtle way. But the third thing is that I think in some of the other work that I've done, it looks like managers are also sort of highly dispersed in terms of their own productivity. And so you might imagine that a colleague is a substitute for a manager who is not so great. And so it might be that you know, if we have a, a bad boss collectively, the ability for me to interact with you is going to be more powerful than the ability for me to interact with a boss who isn't paying attention to me or is providing advice that isn't so great. Okay, so you have this, this setting, you have this hypothesis about potential barriers that may prevent knowledge flows between workers. Can you describe what is the experiment that you ran? So I, I want to give my co-authors quite a bit of credit here because they were really the, the motivating force behind the experiment and they were on the ground and pulled it off. And so... So that was you in the plural. <laughs> you in the plural. Okay. So the experiment was as follows. We wanted to test whether pairing people up at work with a random coworker would sort of have any distinguishable effect on productivity and under what conditions those pairs would have meaningful productivity impacts. And so we, we really had four groups that were active. And the first was a group where two sales agents were paired up at random and they were just told that they were paired and that their joint productivity metrics would be on display. And then they really didn't hear anything else. Uh, but the joint productivity met metric piece of this is important. The, the second group was paired up and told that their joint productivity metrics would be on display and that they would be compensated for their sales gains as a group or collectively relative to a baseline period. And so the first group is what we would term the internal control group. They had a very, very light touch intervention where they were just aware that there was a pairing going on. And the second group, uh, which is incentivized based on their, their joint output gains is a group that we termed the pair incentives group. There are two more groups. The third group is a group that we term the structured meetings group. And this group had the same pairing and the same sort of display of their productivity metrics, but there was no incentive that was provided around those productivity metrics to the agents in this group. They just got paired two agents together. And then in this group, we told them that they should have short meetings with one another. Uh, and if they did that, they would 
be eligible to receive a free lunch. And over those meetings, we ask them to reflect on their best and worst sales calls of the week, and then to ask their partner for, for help and to record what happened in a worksheet that was provided to each uh, person in that group. And then the, the last group or the fourth group is what we call the combined group, which had both the incentives and the, the structured meetings. So the combined group was compensated for their joint sales growth and also had this avenue to uh, sit down and chat with uh, another salesperson that they were randomly paired with. So, so just to be clear, this, this is obviously an experiment. So whether you belong to one group or another was randomly allocated. But in, in addition to this, the identity of your partner will also be randomly allocated. Uh, that's correct. So you were randomly allocated at a first level into one of these four conditions if you were a sales agent, based on the identity of your manager. So it's a it's a cluster design based on the team that you work with. And then within that condition, you are randomly allocated to a partner uh, in that same group. It didn't necessarily have to be a partner on your team, but it was just a partner who was in that group. And in the structured meetings uh, treatment, you say that there were like uh, some short meetings uh, between the two partners that were encouraged, and then there will be a lunch that they will have together. Correct. Uh, how, how long would you expect that these meetings to last? Or uh, So each meeting, I, I think anecdotally, tended to last between 15 to, to 30 minutes at first, and then they would go off and have lunch later in the week together, uh, and then they might spend 30 minutes together over lunch. So at baseline, they're not spending a ton of time together, but they're spending more time off of the, the phones together than they otherwise probably would be. And the idea was that the structured meetings will kind of like break the ice in terms of getting them to talk about their sales strategies and so on. So it will decrease those type of embarrassment barriers that you were referring to earlier, while the pair incentives meeting will create an interest to help each other's colleagues. So therefore, they will be tackling more directly the supply side. Is that what you had in mind? That was precisely sort of the hypotheses that I think this design allows you to test. I think if you zoom out just a little bit, there is one view of the literature and management from Bloom, Van Rienen, and Sadoon that really tends to emphasize routines and uh, practices in a different literature that it sort of incentivizes, it, that emphasizes incentives and contract design and things like that. And I think that if, if you were to split this design into thinking about the fit with those two separate literatures, one is closer with the structured meetings to the Bloom, Van Rien, and Sedun type of view. The other is probably closer to, you know, the Lazier et al. types of views that getting the incentives right is probably the first order level of importance for for most ways of, of thinking about getting people to act in your own in, in the firm's interest. Okay. So what are the baseline results that you that you find? So the this experiment was live for four weeks. And so during the the four-week period when the experiment was live, we found that both the pair incentives treatment and the structured meetings treatment, and then by analogy, since the combined treatment had both of those, that all three of those active treatments raised productivity relative to what we termed the internal control group that didn't have either the incentives or uh, 
or the, the meetings with a, with a partner. So during the four-week period where the experiment was live, the meetings resulted in over a 20% increase in sales productivity. And the incentives group alone had close to a 15% increase in sales productivity. And the combined group looked pretty similar to sort of the, the max of the sales productivity, which was the, the structured meetings group. And so all three of these, all three of these interventions worked in, in some sense in terms of raising productivity or in terms of raising output for the participants in that arm of the experiment. So specifically, you have like a figure in the paper in which you see the evolution of all four groups prior to these four weeks of the treatment, and they are all evolving um, approximately equally, and, and they have the same levels because of the randomness of the allocation of workers to, to, to the different groups. And then immediately, as the experiment starts, the, um, the structured meetings and the combined treatment shoot up. The pair incentives also shoots up. And then they remain high for these four weeks of the experiment. One thing that I thought was quite interesting in terms of uh, looking at this figure in which the effects seem to be so immediate, especially for the structured meetings treatment, is that my expectation would have been that it takes a while to communicate this type of subtle knowledge that we were describing earlier. But it seems that already in the first week in which agents are paired uh, with somebody else, they already acquire all the knowledge that is going to bring them up to the productivity frontier, or at least their own productivity frontier. And, and then there is not an additional increase in the second, third, and fourth weeks. Like it seems that all the knowledge has already been acquired. And this is, I think, interesting because if I, if I understood well reading the, the paper, the the lunch that they have takes place in the middle of the first week. So presumably in the first half of the week has already taken place without the knowledge and still productivity increases so, so, so dramatically and so quickly. I was wondering whether this is something that you were expecting and, and it's just my, my initial hypothesis was wrong or whether you were also a little bit surprised by that. So I, I remember you asking me this tough question in a seminar. Oh, wow. Or at a conference at some point <laughs> in the past. Then and, I forgot it. I forgot it and I remembered it again. And, you know, this, this question led to at least a good month of soul searching among the, the co-author <laughs> team. And so I think I have a, a reasonably satisfactory answer for you. But, you know, take this with what it is, because there are always issues with papers that are, are hard to explain. But I, I think that we're at least reasonably convinced of the following. So. One, we we think that some of the teams were meeting relatively early in the week. And so this was really like a two-stage process that they they met for a short meeting and then they had lunch later in the week. And so those early meetings were happening usually before Wednesday. So some of them would have occurred on Monday, some Tuesday, some like Wednesday morning. Then they'd turn in these worksheets. Then they'd get a ticket to go have a free lunch Thursday, Friday. But I think you're correct that you would have expected that this would not have necessarily been quite so instantaneous or that you might have thought that there was a cumulative way of pushing people to acquire more knowledge through this treatment. And so you would have expected that the effect would go up at least during the experimental period rather than having this 
instantaneous or close to instantaneous boost. I, I think that there are two possible explanations for this. One of which is that as part of the structured meetings treatment, agents were primed to think about their own sales process. Meaning the worksheet said, you know, what are you doing well and what are you doing poorly? And so part of this might have been self-reflection that if you didn't stop to think about what you were doing well or doing poorly and just acted like an automaton, it, it may have been that just being nudged to take a second to reflect on your strengths and weaknesses would have caused you to change something. A second possibility is that many of the tips and tricks are things that were really effective up front. And so the first piece of information that gets transmitted is likely to be the most impactful. So for example, one thing might be to say, you know, Jordy, don't ask about price up front, ask about features, and then talk about prices at the end or something like that. And so I think that our view is closer to the second for two reasons. The, the first reason is that if we hold fixed people's self-reflection, it looks like partners who were paired with higher performing salespeople did better than those who were paired with lower performing salespeople. And you wouldn't have necessarily expected that in the, the structured meetings treatment if you thought that the main mechanism was like this self-reflective thing. And then I think the second reason is that I think we can validate some of what the tips and tricks that get communicated or the knowledge that gets communicated between partners in the worksheets. And it does look like people in some of those first weeks have at least qualitatively entries that suggest that they've kind of rethought their own sales process after talking with a partner who, who has said, you know, either push this bundle at the expense of this other bundle or don't mention X thing in a call, which is likely to sink your sales. And so if you think about just employing some of those things that are really actionable on a short-term basis, I, I think that we're at least convinced that it's plausible that some of those knowledge flows could have had a relatively quick effect overall. But I agreed with you that when I originally looked at that, that that pattern required quite a bit more digging. I, I, I think that the second explanation is compelling. It goes, so you and I, we really don't know that much about this world because we have not been professionals of sales. Well, I haven't, presumably you haven't either. So it could be that our preconceptions about the type of knowledge are just wrong and that at least for some workers, there are certain dimensions of knowledge that are low-hanging fruits in which somebody telling you, you know, uh, addressing the customer this way is very patronizing or asking for the price up front, as you were saying, is always a bad idea. It is possible that the not, uh, at least part of the knowledge is not as subtle uh, as we imagine it from outside and therefore relatively quickly they can reach their own personal productivity frontier. But in addition to looking at the four weeks of the intervention, you also continue measuring the productivity of these workers later in, in the future. Uh, what do you find there? Well, I think this is, to humble brag a little bit, the remarkable piece of the paper. And what happened in terms of the experimental design is that after four weeks, the, the treatments got turned off. And so you have a design that is ideally 
suited, at least in my mind, to say something about persistence. Now, that design may not be able to uncover precise mechanisms, but turning the experiment off just allows you to see what sticks and what reverts back to the, the pre-experimental status quo. And it turns out that if you look at the one week to 20 plus weeks after treatment, the agents who just had incentives alone or the pair incentives agents immediately revert back to their level of productivity prior to the experiment. So it looked like the incentives between agents were doing something to change their behavior. But once you removed the incentive, nothing stuck around. In contrast, the agents who were in treatment conditions where they had these meetings ended up having persistent performance gains, meaning that their increase in productivity, which was estimated to be about 24% during the four-week treatment period, stuck around. And several months after we turned off the treatments or the firm turned off the treatments, it, it looks like sales averaged in excess of 15% greater than the, the pre-treatment productivity or the pre-treatment sales for these agents in the, the structure meetings and combined group. And so it looks like, given that this was sort of a persistent gain in performance, that there was something that was relatively permanent in, in our interpretation, that is knowledge, that was transferred during these meetings to these agents. I think that these results are, are very nice. If you come with a skeptical view that you don't know what could have generated the effects during the intervention, it's very nice to see that for the structure meetings, effects remain, and therefore that is pointing towards the, the knowledge flows. But if you come from the perspective of, well, what else could the agents have been doing to increase their productivity in the structure meetings treatment other than knowledge flows? If you think that the most likely, the most plausible explanation is knowledge flows, you shouldn't be surprised that these results, that these effects are persistent because knowledge does not disappear overnight, right? So it, it is nice that it points at the mechanism. It would be surprising if, if for that treatment, the effects suddenly disappeared. I, I completely agree with that. And so I, I think that there's something that has to imply either some cumulative thing that knowledge is persistent or some long-term behavior change that, that would explain the result. Uh, whereas for the pair incentives treatment, the fact that the effects disappear immediately, the interpretation there must be that there was very little knowledge change and that all the increase in productivity during the intervention period is the result of just an increase in effort. That's at least our interpretation. I, I will say that you always face a trade-off with experimental design in that we don't have a direct measure of what the pairs of coworkers in the pair incentives treatment did. And the reason for that is we worried that if we had the same measurement device, which was these worksheets that we used in the structured meetings treatment, that that might prompt these individuals in the pair incentives treatment to act differently than through the pure provision of incentives. And so I think one way of viewing this, which is consistent with your interpretation is, do you see workers who are incentivized to work together kind of get to where the agents in the structured meetings ultimately ended up landing or ultimately ended up arriving? And I, I, the answer to that question from our perspective, I think is no. And I think there's reasonably good experimentally identified variation to support that. But as a result of that, we weren't able to prompt people in the, the pair incentives group 
to record what they talked about because we didn't actually want to prompt them to talk at all. We wanted to see if they would get there on their own. So you, you were saying that you have like some surveys and also you have the evidence from these from these sheets that the agency in the structured meetings treatments feel and that that allows you to infer that where well, it seems that they are talking about what they are doing well or how to improve and, and so on. Can you tell us more about this? And would you expect that it is only the agents who fill these these sheets are the ones for which the effects in the structured meeting treatment are the largest? So we did use the the sheets to try and validate that the interpretation of knowledge is correct. I, I think that there is at least one factor that points to some correlation between what is recorded in these sheets and a larger treatment effect. And that is, if you were an agent who was a below median productivity agent and you were paired with an above median productivity agent, your sheets in terms of coding by a third party RA who does, didn't know anything about the research were more detailed and had more concrete recommendations for what to do compared to other pairings of agents. So, you know, if you were a sales superstar, on average, your sheet would have been more sparse in terms of tips. Like one of the sales superstars wrote down on his or her sheet, like my partner said, I got it. And of course that's true. If you're the best person in the company, you would probably expect that the direction of help was from the best person to one of the weaker salespeople. Just to, just to be clear, these are also the subgroups for which you find the strongest effects in terms of productivity. Correct. Right? So the two go hand in hand. The two go hand in hand. That if you were a weaker salesperson paired with a stronger salesperson, you had larger gains in productivity, both during the, the four-week treatment period and in the 20 weeks afterward. And you were more likely to write down concrete tangible things that you should be doing on the job in your worksheets relative to other groups of agents in the same in the same treatment allocation or in the same high level treatment group. Okay, so it sounds all very compelling. Knowledge flows are important. They are inefficient or the level is inefficient in organizations. This paper is very nice. It was published very well. I am not aware of any study that, that looks at this uh, specific intervention that you look at here. But one way to think about what you do, at least in terms of the structured meetings treatment, is as a type of mentoring. That is when agents arrive, they are paired with a high experience, presumably pretty good colleague, and then there's the mentoring process is supposed to take care of some of the meetings and discussions that, that, that you have here. Are there papers out there studying mentoring and the if the, if there are, what do they do and how do they differ from what you do? I think there are papers that study the effects of mentoring or the effects of leadership. I've seen papers that, you know, range from looking at the careers of military officers, usually in the context of thinking about like a superior, a better superior officer as a boss to mentorship around careers. There's even a large intervention at the AEA level around mentoring for female economists. And that is an RCT that will study sort of career outcomes. And so I think the mentoring analogy is quite adept. I would say that most of the papers in that literature try to estimate causal effects from mentoring and looking at different conditions under which those causal effects may or may not vary. And of course, this is a vast literature. This is a literature that is 
probably going to touch everything from organizational behavior to psychology to labor economics to the economics of, of productivity. And I, I think that the what we know about that literature is that the effects of mentoring are relatively heterogeneous and tend to vary quite a quite a lot by context. One of the at least assertions that comes out of this literature is that effects tend to vary quite a bit by gender. And I, I think your intuition here, and I don't think we've talked about this online, is that the mentoring analogy probably is is relevant for the follow-up work that we're doing on this study, which is after this intervention, the, the firm thought that they could leverage the intervention by rolling out a mentoring program where they took the best sales agents and had them help with onboarding for new people who were joining the firm. And they agreed to do this experimentally. And so the question in the, the follow-up work that we're trying to answer is that we have two different conditions again. And for every new cohort that was joining the firm, we flipped a coin and said that that cohort was either going to be a cohort where agents were randomly allocated to receiving a mentor or where agents could select whether they wanted to be eligible to receive a mentor or not. And then conditional on selection, they would be allocated a mentor at random. And the reason for this is that there was limited supply. There was a limited supply of mentors in this program because the firm only really wanted to pull from the, the ranks of people who wanted to get promoted through, uh, through the firm. And so as a result, they had to have some allocation mechanism to say, you know, we're going to try to do this as fairly as possible. We're going to randomize who gets a mentor. It just turned out that for some of those randomization things, some people were able to opt out or not. And I think the question in this literature that is generally quite motivating is whether the provision of mentorship is inefficient because of the demand side. So I think there are anecdotes that suggest that people who would benefit from having a mentor tend not to seek out that type of mentoring relationship. And especially if you think about sort of mentoring relationships across gender. And so one of the things that we're trying to do in this follow-up work is to sort of test the hypothesis in this setting that the people who would have opted out from mentoring would have heterogeneous gains from mentoring relative to the people who get randomized in. I was going to ask you about future work, but you have already volunteered it. Uh, so I guess check out this podcast in three years time for the results on this. If you'll have me back. <laughs> Of course we will. Uh, Chris, thank you for coming to the program. Thanks so much, Jordi. It's always it's always great to catch up with you and to hear how you interrogate me because it always improves the way that I think about my own work. I have been speaking with Chris Danton and this episode has been produced by Anderson Tan. Music and logo by Aitana Blanesiso. Check this feed for more episodes of The Visible Hand.